wonderful. Joanne is going to be teaching us today um, on this text as well as the whole text that your lesson covered. So um, many years ago, well not many, but some years ago, Joanne lived in Zinesville and became a dear friend of Kathy Gurley's, uh, who that friendship has remained through raising children together all through these years. Um, but today, Joanne and her husband live in Bloomington, and she is involved with women's Bible study in her church in Bloomington. So um, she heard about Habits of the Heart and became interested in our curriculum. And so she joined uh, that curriculum writing process back in April. Uh, so many of us have grown to just love her and really learn from her. She um, is wise in God's word and is a gifted teacher. So you'll hear from her this morning. But before that, you know, this time is so important. We come and we all, I do, I'm sure you do too. I've got things in my mind, uh, things in my heart. And what we want to do um, each week here at this time is to have just a little bit of quiet, really in preparation of the hearing of God's word. We want to prepare our hearts and our minds. We'll try to be quiet, be still. That's hard to do. But that's the purpose of this time, so that we can receive what the Lord would have us receive. So for the next couple of minutes, just remain seated, and we're going to play a song uh, that speaks a little bit about what we'll be learning and about um, what we're taught uh, in this lesson this week. So just listen. If you'd like to sing along, you're welcome to sing along. But let this time just be a gift to you here this morning, and then we'll hear from Joanne. All right. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of Good morning. I can't think of a better song to start out with this portion of James, uh, particularly knowing the devastation that has hit your community this week. I'd like to begin by uh, reading the text today from the ESV version, James 1, verses 2 through 18. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth death, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Heavenly Father, giver of all good and perfect gifts, we just thank you for your steadfastness and your constant presence in our lives. May we keep our eyes on you, through the trials and challenges of this life. And may we, by your grace, remain steadfast through them, ultimately bringing you glory. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Every now and then, a plant must weather a storm. And contrary to what I would have thought, Plants do the most growing during, the, during a storm. In fact, botanists tell us that if we were to take a cross-section of the earth during a vicious storm, we could literally observe the roots reaching further down into the soil. When the heavens open up and the winds and rains of life are pummeling against you, do you feel your faith roots growing? Or do you, as I sometimes do, cry out in anguish and frustration, Lord, how could you let this happen? I think God can handle our questions, many of which have no satisfactory answer this side of heaven. And let's face it, when life is difficult and pressing down on us, it is extremely hard to view our trials from an eternal perspective. But what if we consider that he didn't just let these things happen? What if the trials and the adversities that we face in life are things that he's using to make us more like him? What if he is desiring to use adversity to melt and burn away the undesirable elements in our lives that we might be a reflection of him, like refined silver? 
James's letter to the persecuted Christians and us affirms that trials are not a waste or even a coincidence, but rather something God does desire to use in our lives. Maybe someone needs to hear that today. Maybe someone needs to know that whatever you're walking through, maybe even crawling through, that your suffering is purposeful, that it's an opportunity for your faith to be refined, or even as author Jerry Sitzer would say, a grace disguised. If you are in a time of intense suffering right now, my heart's desire is that something you would hear this morning, either in the lecture or in your discussion groups or through your digging through God's Word, would be an encouragement, a lifeline to you. Truth be told, I struggle with the issue of suffering and a sovereign God. And there was a time in the not-too-distant past when those opening words of James counted all joy would have been offensive to my sensibilities. I've struggled with the whys and the hows. A good God would allow the suffering I endured as a young girl. Why did he not intervene or rescue me from years of brutal abuse that had I borne witness to as an adult would have been considered criminal? How could that God be good? How could I ever trust him? And I've spent countless weeks, months really, by my daughter's hospital bedside as she's bravely battled an unpredictable autoimmune disease that has a life of its own and has nearly taken her life on several occasions. Recently, she told me that she thanks God for her disease because it was the one thing that brought her back to him after a time of wandering in the wilderness. The anguish that I feel as a mother, helpless to intervene and remove her pain, has at times been excruciating. I, I know some of you know what that feels like. Never would I have imagined the work that God was doing in her, though I often prayed that her suffering would not be wasted. Her words humbled and challenged me. And James, too, challenges us and the persecuted believers to move beyond an intellectual knowledge of God and his word to a vibrant faith that permeates every square inch of life, including our trials. A faith that doesn't just know God's word, a faith that knows the God of the word, a faith that transforms. James himself has been transformed he was catapulted from unbelieving brother into a personal encounter with the risen Lord to joining the apostolic band and finally becoming a prominent figure in the Jerusalem church. Stephen has been stoned. James, the brother of John, has been killed by Herod. And Peter himself has been arrested, imprisoned, and miraculously released. The persecuted Christians have been scattered from their homes, uprooted, leaving the familiar behind, running for their lives. Is it any wonder James speaks so much of trials? Welcome to the life of the Christian. James places trials in a position of prominence in his letter, and temptations 
often accompany trials, so that's where our focus is going to be this morning, exploring how do we allow God to turn our trials and temptations into triumphs. First, James opens his letter with an appeal to see God's goodness in our trials. And this is not an easy thing for me to do anyway when I'm suffering. Often I question God's goodness in my trials. There aren't many things harder than counting hardships joy. It's not that James is saying that trials in and of themselves are good or cause for joy, but he calls us to think about them in light of the gospel, in light of what God desires to achieve in us through them, which is a deep faith with deep roots, conforming us more and more to his image so that we would be a light in a dark world. Every one of us faces trials, even non-Christians, but central to how we navigate them as believers is our understanding of God's purposes in them and how we cope with them in light of those purposes. James tells us that whether we face trials from the outside or temptations from within, that we can be victorious because of our faith in Christ and that spiritual maturity of utmost importance to James will be the result. James lays out four imperatives, four essentials for victory in trials. And the first is a joyful attitude. He says, count it all joy. Outlook determines outcome, and attitude determines action. God tells us in his word that we are to expect trials. John 16, says, in this world we will have tribulation. And Paul also told his converts the same. We must go through much tribulation to enter into the kingdom of God. So it's not if we face trials, it's when. Some trials come simply because we're human. Accidents and tragedies and disappointments. Others come because we're Christians. And Peter emphasized this in his first letter when he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Satan fights us, the world opposes us, and this makes for a life of battle. Interestingly, some translations use the word experience instead of meet or face various trials. And when translated from the Greek, that word means fall into. Luke uses it in the account of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10.30 when he says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. We fall into the kind of hardship that James is talking about here through no fault of our own. And those kinds of hardships can leave us scarred, bloodied, and bruised. They can rob us of our security, our dignity, our hopes, and our dreams. But James encourages us by unfolding in the following verses why persevering is worth the trouble. The word count is a financial term, and it means to evaluate. Paul used it in Philippians 3. Paul evaluated evaluated his life against the fact that he was a Christian. Everything else didn't matter to him. It was garbage, he said. And James calls upon us to to count or evaluate our trials in light of our relationship with Christ, in light of what God is doing in us through them. So James 
in essence, is saying that when trials come, in order to end with joy, the joy that comes from a, a faith that is mature and complete, from looking more and more like Christ, we must view trials as the means by which we get there. So in other words, we must begin with joy in order to end with joy. How is this possible? Well, James gives us the answer in the second imperative, an understanding mind. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What exactly do we know as Christians about faith and the testing of faith? Well, for one, we know faith is always tested for the purpose of increasing it. When God called Abraham to live by faith, he tested him in order to increase his faith. The Greek word used here for tested is a term that the silversmith in James's day would use. And he would place metal, silver, into a pot, heat it up, and the impurities would rise to the surface. And then the silversmith would scoop the impurities off the top, repeating this process over and over until he pronounced that the metal was tested or pure. And the way he knew that it was tested was when he could see his own reflection in it. God intends for the trials in our lives to be testing or purifying us until one day he can see his own reflection in us. That's the concept of becoming mature and complete, not lacking anything. God wants us to be a reflection of him, and he uses the trials in our lives to rid us of the impurities that alter our appearance, that look nothing like him. Many of those things James talks about in his letter, quarreling, judgmentalism, partiality, an unbridled tongue, and the list goes on. He wants to make, <clears throat> excuse me, wants to make us holy through our trials so others can see him reflected in us. The difficulties in life, James asserts, are opportunities for us to show the metal of our faith, to show what it is made of. And it shows us as well as others that we indeed can weather difficult circumstances. It shows that our faith is genuine. And that kind of faith requires endurance. Sometimes endurance is translated patience. And biblical patience is not a passive acceptance of circumstances. It's courageous perseverance in the face of suffering and difficulty, the ability to keep going when the going is tough. One translation I read referred to it as heroic endurance. Patience is a sign of maturity, and it is developed through our trials. We can't gain or grow in patience from reading a book or watching a YouTube video. The results when we trust God and obey him going through trials is the development of a level of spiritual maturity and muscle that then prepares us for the next trial. The next imperative for turning trials into triumph is a surrendered will. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's goal for us is spiritual maturity, but he needs our cooperation in the process. When we yield to him, when we let him, he can accomplish his work in us. The mature Christian surrenders his will and yields to God. 
Finally, the last imperative is the believing heart. James says, ask for the wisdom that you need and believe that he will, God will give it to you and not doubt. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. James encourages his readers not to hesitate to ask God for the help that they need. And that's consistent with the teaching of Jesus that we see in Matthew and Mark's Gospels. The teaching that says that God is sure to respond to the prayers of the faithful. What should we pray about when we're facing trials? James says in prayer, ask for wisdom. The Jewish people were lovers of wisdom. Someone said that knowledge is the ability to take things apart and wisdom is the ability to put them together. Or another way of saying it, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. And prayer brings us to ask God for the wisdom that we need to make good choices in life's tough circumstances. And this is not a one-time thing. The word ask in verse 5 is present tense, so we are to ask for as much wisdom and as often as we need it. Wisdom helps us to understand how to use adversity for our good and God's glory. And heaven knows I need that. When I'm in my middle of a trial, I'm just trying to survive. I'm not thinking about how I can glorify God in it. I want that to be my goal. James not only instructs us to ask for wisdom, but also describes how to ask in faith, not as a double-minded or a double-souled person who is up one minute and down the next, like the waves of a choppy sea. James says that person has a foot in both worlds. He wants to love God and the world. He is unstable, and his faith is immature. James calls us to ask in faith, not doubting, believing that God will give us the wisdom that we need. The spiritual motivation behind every imperative in this section is love. James says if our love motivates us to have a joyful attitude, an understanding mind, a surrendered will, and a believing heart, then we will receive a reward for our faithfulness, the crown of life. From the crown of life promised to the spiritually mature person who is patient in trials, James then transitions to temptation. Trials themselves can lead us to temptation or they can lead us to God. And up until this point, James's emphasis has been on the testing of faith through harsh circumstances, through those things that we fall into. But now with the slightest transition and context and wording, he moves on to the area of temptation. No one escapes temptation. We are all tempted, but not all of us are tempted by the same thing. Beth Moore says that temptation is an each person kind of thing. The bait fits the fish. Have you ever blamed God for making you this way? I certainly have. Proverbs 19.3 says, A man's foolishness leads him astray, yet his heart rages against the Lord. In the midst of trials, we have a tendency to blame God for our troubles and failures. 
And we've been doing this since the beginning of time. In Genesis 3.12, we see Adam blaming God for giving him Eve as the reason that he ate of the forbidden fruit. When we blame God for our troubles and failures, when we question his love and resist his will, it's at this juncture that Satan provides us with an opportunity to escape the difficulty. This opportunity then becomes a temptation, an opportunity to obtain a good thing in a bad way outside of the will of God. James 1.14 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We are baited by our own desires. And by itself, the term is not necessarily negative. Its context determines whether it's positive or negative. Another way of saying it is craving. Luke uses it in a positive way in Luke 22:15, when he quotes Jesus saying to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. But of course, James is talking about the negative context of the word desire or craving. And Dr. K.A. Richardson's definition for the negative context is deformed desire, which conjures up a totally different word picture in my mind. You know, it's that thing you love to hate, that thing that no matter how hard you try, you cannot stop doing. You're drawn to it like a moth to the flame. This often quoted piece of poetry bears repeating, two natures beat within my breast, one is foul, the other blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, but the one I feed will dominate. There's no mistaking the fact that temptation is as much a test of our faith as suffering. And if when tested, we choose to be faithful and endure, the endurance will bring about the perfect effect of maturity and completeness. But the choice is ours. This is James' version of Deuteronomy 30, 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Very much aware of our tendency to blame God for the deformed desires that are conceived in us, James defends God's honor, indeed, his very nature, God allows trials, but he never tempts. And in fact, the language used here is so strong, it's as if James is saying, don't you dare say God is tempting you. If we are to mature in our faith, we must face both trials and temptations. Even Jesus faced temptation. Hebrews 4.14 tells us that he experienced the full brunt of temptation and stood the test. Desire conceives, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. All of us have experienced this. We feel the craving, we feel the desire, and instead of fighting it, we give in. And by the time we're done, there's death. There's always some kind of death when we walk outside God's holy will. And oh, what death! My sin has brought me the death of trust, the death of security, the death of relationships. How thankful I am that we serve a God that raises the dead. 
using the metaphor of conception and childbirth, James describes the progression of sin in four stages. Desire, which involves the emotion. Deception, which involves the intellect. Disobedience, which of course involves the will. And then finally, it leads to death. All three of those, if you picture a triangle, if any one of those, intellect, emotion, or will is at the top running the show, we're in trouble. We have to bow all of those areas to the Lordship of Christ. Temptation always carries with it some bait that appeals to our desires. It's attractive to us. If it wasn't attractive, it wouldn't be a temptation. And it also hides the fact that yielding to it will bring consequences. For example, in the garden, Eve saw what she thought what she what she thought she was missing, not what her actions would cost her and the rest of mankind. And in Genesis 13, 10, Lot saw the well-watered plains of Jordan, not what lurked in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. And from the rooftop, David saw the beautiful Bathsheba, not where his tragic sin with her would lead. Jesus used the word of God, the sword of the spirit, to deal with temptation. The more we know God's truth, the more we have it hidden in our hearts, the better we are at detecting the bait, the better we are at walking by faith, not by sight. All four stages of sin are depicted in Genesis 3 in the account of the fall of Adam and Eve. Ultimately, both Adam and Eve experienced immediate spiritual death, separation from God, as well as physical death and physical separation from God. If we are a believer, our sin hurts our communion, our fellowship with God, but our standing before him is secure because of the atoning work that Christ did for us on the cross. And there's not a saved one among us here that doesn't still sin. This isn't about trying to achieve some measure of perfection through our own efforts, which would be futile anyway. It is about allowing the one who is perfect to achieve something in us that we could never do on our own if we are yielded to him. God is willing and able to give us the wisdom we need to lead us out of temptation, and he wants us to be victorious, to have a victorious life in Christ. But we all fall. And when you do, remember that God extends his lavish grace to those who ask for it with repentant hearts. I love this quote from Tim Keller. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. After making it clear that God in no way deserves the blame for human sin, James moves on then to identify God with every good thing that happens. First, he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And here, James is not only issuing a warning about what he's already stated, that we not be deceived into blaming God for tempting us, but he's also implying in what follows, that we not be deceived into thinking that the good things that happen are the result of our own achievements. 
In other words, we have a tendency to blame God for the bad and take credit for the good. Once we start to doubt God's goodness, we're vulnerable to the bait the enemy offers. Much of our misery stems from feeling unloved, and in the midst of adverse circumstances, we can tend to feel that God is no longer good, that he has withdrawn his love, that he has forsaken us. And in fact, for some of us, this feeling of abandonment can be worse than the adversity itself. One of Satan's tricks, particularly in trials, is to convince us that our Father does not love or care for us. When Satan approached Eve, he made her feel as though God was withholding something from her. And the suggestion is, if God is good and really loves you, of course he would want you to eat of any tree in the garden. And when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he raises the issue of hunger, the implication being, if your father loves you, why are you hungry? A great barrier for us against temptation is remembering and clinging to the goodness of God and who he says he is. God only gives good gifts. If it comes from God, then it must be good. Even Paul's thorn in the flesh, which surely seems a strange gift to us, was ultimately a blessing, teaching him the sufficiency of God's grace. James further emphasizes the purity of God's character when it says there's no variation or shadow due to change. Not only is God good, he is also changeless. Unlike the rotating celestial bodies changing day into night, Casting shadows with God, it's always shadowless high noon. He is always good, and he is always sending good gifts. Even when we don't see them, he's sending them. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes life is horrible. But our battle scars can become roadmaps that lead straight to Jesus. And sometimes what we see is a curse is really a gift in disguise. I just want to close today with a story by Gary Richmond, who wrote a book many years ago called A View from the Zoo, and it's a collection of parables, modern-day stories, life lessons he learned from the animals he cared for at the Los Angeles Zoo. And one such gripping story he tells is when he and over 100 other people were exposed to rabies, rabid raccoon kittens, because of one doctor's criminal negligence, really. Uh, out of those 100 people, Gary was one of four exposed in a vital way, meaning that he required treatment. I don't know anything about how they treat rabies these days, but it used to be pretty horrific. 50 very painful injections to the abdomen. Death was a possibility. On the sixth day of treatment, Gary ends up in the intensive care unit, swollen beyond recognition, in pain that he had never experienced before or since, laboring to breathe. Fear started to swallow him up. At first, he feared he was going to die. And then after living in this hellish prison of his body for nearly 24 hours, never losing consciousness, he began to fear he wouldn't die. 
and actually prayed that Lord, the Lord would take him. Finally, he said he was trying to remember the faithful saints, Job and Jeremiah, and he said the words of Paul to the church at Philippi came back to him. And he said, he remembered him saying that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Gary said, and I quote, a tremendous peace settled in as I realized that I had been given a chance to know Christ in a different way than I had ever known him before. He had suffered because of my sin, and now I was suffering because of someone else's sin. We had something in common now, and it helped me to know something of his powers of love that added to his greatness. He chose to suffer for me before I loved him in any way. There were only a handful of people I would be willing to suffer for, and all of them already loved me. How different Jesus was from me. How better. How perfect. Gary went on to recover, but through the nightmare, he encountered his Lord in a way he never could have imagined, much less would have signed up for. Like Gary, the persecuted believers were also fighting for their lives. And yet James encourages them, as well as us, to view our trials in light of what God can do through them. Jerry Sitzer, who I mentioned previously, is an author of a book called A Grace Disguised. And he lost three generations of loved ones in a tragic drunk driving accident. I feel like his voice is credible. He's not just offering empty platitudes. The man has suffered. Amazingly, three years into his devastating grief, he says this, a world with grace will give us more than we deserve. It will give us life, even in our suffering. So often, I view suffering as undeserved. When life goes awry, I feel violated. When I get what I feel like I don't deserve and I don't get what I feel like I do deserve, I wonder if the persecuted believers ever felt that way. Rarely, rarely do I view suffering from the other side. Perhaps someone's suffering, perhaps even my own, is undeserved. But then so is my redemption. I've come to realize the cross is the key to a compelling explanation for trusting God and his goodness in the face of trials. Relationship with Christ alone can bring meaning and comfort and hope in our adversity. God's decision to allow temporal suffering and trials is reconcilable only when viewed from an eternal perspective. And this is tremendously difficult for us to master and maintain. We move in time. God operates in eternity. He sees the end from the beginning. And what constitutes an emergency to us is a divine opportunity to him in the great mosaic of his purposes, useful for building our trust, growing and maturing the muscles of our faith, deepening our roots. If we can dare to see our trials through the lens of eternity, a heavenly lens, a stepping stone versus a stumbling block, 
then suddenly, against the backdrop of the cross, our plight becomes bearable. Jerry Sitzer said, it's not so much what happens to us that matters most. It's what happens in us. Chuck Swindoll said, from this side of glory, we see the tapestry from underneath, and it is full of knots and twisted threads that lack meaning and beauty. From God's perspective, it's all under control. James gives us no complete answer to the often asked question of why does God allow the righteous to suffer? It's part of the bigger picture that we simply cannot see. But implicit in what he does say is that the suffering of believers is always, always under the providential control of a God who only wants the best for his children. If your soul aches and your load is heavy, you just might be on a journey that will stretch and grow the roots of your faith. And if you dare to let it, your sorrow can increase your capacity to love well, to live well, and to even experience joy, not when the darkness lifts, but even in its very midst. It'll bring you one step closer to being able to truly count it all joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just um, don't know where we would be without your grace. Lord, we just thank you for the suffering that you so willingly endured, suffering that you did not deserve, but because of your great love, went willingly to the cross on our behalf. Help us to fix our eyes, not on what is seen, Lord, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. We thank you so much for your redeeming love. And I pray these, name in the, these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.